Well, it's my uh, joy and privilege to be with you all this morning. So I remember uh, the elders of our church praying for your church, I, I think before it was a church, uh, back when Peter and Missy and others were, were just talking about planting this church. So for me, it's a, a real joy uh, to uh, see flesh and blood to what has been uh, just an, a name and an idea up until this point. So uh, rejoicing to see all that God has done. Um, I want to start with a question, actually a couple of questions. First question, a bit of a thought starter. Uh, with whom would you most like to have dinner? Uh, you can pick the circumstances. Uh, that's not important. I'd go barbecue, but you can, you can do your own thing there, right? Assume the other person's paying, so nothing's off limits, right? I'm wondering more about the identity of the person you would choose rather than the circumstances, right? Uh, for the sake of our exercise, let's say there are no limits. It could be anyone, anywhere, from any time. So it could be a family member who has passed away and that you miss terribly. It could be a figure from history, someone like Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. It could be a sports hero, right? like Nick Foles, the Super Bowl-winning quarterback of our beloved Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> no? Not? Yeah. Well, if you're a Commanders fan, I'll explain what the Super Bowl is later uh, for you. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe an author, right? Maybe you're, you're a reader, and so someone like William Shakespeare or Charles Dickens, or, or maybe you love politics, so somebody like Ronald Reagan or, or JFK, right? Whoever it is that you would choose, just imagine what it would be like to have dinner. You'd get to know them in a completely different way. You could ask them questions. You could hear their stories. You could laugh at jokes together. You could reminisce about Super Bowl 52, right? They would get to know you. Uh, they would learn your story. They would ask questions about you. You might even hope that they like you, and if they're still alive, they could maintain a friendship with you over time. I think about who it is you would most want to have a meal with. Okay, now second question. With, with what kind of person would you least like to have a meal? So let's start with politics. Maybe you're politically progressive, and so you'd be really embarrassed if news outlets circulated pictures of you Having, having dinner with a, a conservative political figure, right? Or maybe you're more conservative. And so imagine if people found out that you were having dinner with the current president. Think about it. Who is it that you absolutely wouldn't want to sit down and have a meal with, right? Maybe someone dangerous, like the leader of a terrorist cell or a gang member. Maybe it's someone you find despicable, like the, the CEO of a company that knowingly pollutes the environment, Maybe it's someone who advocates for a different position than yours on uh, hot-button issues like abortion or LGBTQ matters. Again, imagine how that meal would go. I mean, what is there to talk about except how despicable you find them? What if you actually found out that you enjoyed their company, that after you got to know them, you actually liked them? How, how would you go about communicating your disapproval for who they are and what they stand for? Right, so that your friends and family members don't think you're a sellout. After all, having dinner with someone, it's a way of recognizing them, right? It's a way of, of, of communicating uh, friendship. What we see in our passage for this morning from Matthew's gospel, that Jesus' choice of dinner companions is ruffling quite a bit of feathers. So if you have a Bible, if you turn to Matthew chapter 9, this morning I'd like to consider together verses 9 to 13. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. 
We read there. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you're familiar with the story, Jesus is a bit of a celebrity at this point in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 verse 28 tells us that his teaching has been astonishing people. He is healing the sick. He is performing miracles and huge crowds are flocking to him. So when Jesus rolls into your town, right, he's the biggest thing going. And the question naturally is, who's he having dinner with? Who will he honor with his presence? Who's important enough that Jesus would want to have dinner with them? Right, again, this is surely the biggest thing going on in the seaside town of Capernaum. Right, there's no bigger show than Jesus. He's the one everybody's talking about from Jerusalem out into the hinterlands. So you can understand something of the shock of what we read there in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors... And sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Wait, what? Jesus and his disciples are hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And not just that, Matthew says many tax collectors and sinners. Not just that, but they are reclining with them. Right? They, they, they've settled into a posture of, of fellowship. Jesus isn't merely tolerating. He's not sitting up with gritted teeth staring at them. He's put his feet up. He's hanging out with them. It's no surprise what we read there in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? No kidding. Right? The Pharisees are the religious experts. They're the ones who make the rules about who's in and who's out when it comes to religious matters. They were the ones you think a prominent rabbi like Jesus would want to hang out with. They were strict. They were serious. They were disciplined. They were moral. They did things the right way. And one of the ways that they showed how good they were was by staying as far away as possible from bad people. Right? That word sinners there, think of it like with a capital S. Right? These were sinners. Right? Not like sinners like we all know ourselves to be. These weren't people who were struggling with pride or irritability with their kids. But these are notorious people. These are people who didn't abide by the established norms for acceptable behavior. These are the people who are having sex with the wrong people, making money all the wrong ways, getting drunk at the parties, and they really don't care all that much. They know they're not good people. They know they're not welcome in good homes. They know they're not accepted as good, upstanding Jews. And so you see the central drama in our passage for this morning. And what I want to do with our time is to 
simply answer the, the very reasonable question the Pharisees ask. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? I think if we see the answer to that question, we're going to learn something really important about Jesus and what it is that he came to do. Before we dig in too far, we have to go back and get our context. It's set for us there in verse 9. Uh, we meet our author, Matthew, for the first time. It says there, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So if you know the context here in Matthew's gospel, earlier in chapter 9, Jesus returns from his trip across the Sea of Galilee. He's in his adopted hometown of Capernaum. He's healed a paralyzed man and started a, a controversy by asserting his authority to forgive that man's sins. And so now Jesus moves on from that house where he performed the miracle, and as he's going along, he sees Matthew sitting at a tax booth. That means Matthew is a tax collector, and that's really important for understanding what's going on in this story. So let me just fill you in on the background. So at this point in history, this region of the world is occupied by the Roman Empire. And one of the things that Rome had done was to impose oppressive taxes on the Jewish people. One of the ways those taxes were collected were uh, through tolls on the road. So if you had goods to sell, if you wanted to sell your crops or your animals, you'd have to take them on the road and you'd have to pay uh, something like we would consider sales tax to the toll collector on the road. And so what would happen is men would buy the right to collect these taxes. So they would pay the Roman Empire what the, what the Romans wanted, and, and, and with that money, they got the right then to collect as much tax as they could reasonably get. And they were allowed to collect above and beyond what they had paid. So these tax collectors are the worst kind of traitor. Not only are they working for the, the foreign invader, but they're actually taking Jewish people's money and giving it to Rome so that Rome can keep oppressing the Jewish people. Right? They're agents of economic deprivation. They're thieves. They're extortionists. Right? They harassed and oppressed their own people for their personal gain. Right? Imagine for a second that a foreign nation invaded and occupied your homeland. And then imagine they, they levied taxes that were so brutal that you had to scrape just to have any hope of feeding your family. And then imagine your next door neighbor goes to work for that invading army, enriching himself and strengthening the enemy by collecting taxes from you. Right, so you have to look over and see them eating filet mignon every day while you're barely having enough to feed your family, and he's using your money to do it. How would you feel about that person? Right, how, how would you feel about that neighbor? Well, that's how the Jewish people felt about tax collectors. They weren't allowed to testify in court. They weren't allowed to come into the temple. In fact, according to some Jewish legal experts at the time, it was impossible to commit a crime against a tax collector. Right? You could steal your taxes back from them if you could. You were allowed to cheat them. Right? They were the worst of the worst. When we run into Matthew here, when Jesus walks by and he sees Matthew sitting at his toll booth collecting taxes, think, this guy is the worst. He's a horrible person. He's done horrible things. And he obviously didn't care what people thought about him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have chosen this profession. So when Jesus passes by Matthew in verse 9, we know exactly what to expect, don't we? He's going to set things straight. 
he is going to insult this traitor. He's going to condemn him. He's going to preach a sermon about how these people are ruining our society. At the very least, he's going to shun him, ignore him, make it clear that he's not okay. But the most extraordinary thing happens. Jesus comes along. He doesn't hiss. He doesn't taunt this tax collector. He calls him, follow me. And we see there at the end of verse 9 that Matthew responds by dropping everything and following after Jesus. The next thing we know in verse 10, Jesus is reclining at table with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. Luke's account of this event tells us what Matthew is probably too humble to mention, that this party actually took place at, at Matthew's house. But that's the context in which the Pharisees ask their question of Jesus' disciples. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And again, you, you really can't blame them for asking that question. Imagine if Jesus came into our world right now. What would you expect of him? If he showed up sort of in Williamsburg, 2023. Well, he's going to definitely going to go to the national prayer breakfast, right? And maybe go to the big Christian conferences, do interviews on the Christian blogs, uh, make an appearance on the, the local Christian radio station. How do you feel like most evangelical church leaders would respond if Jesus came and went to dinner parties with outspoken LGBTQ activists or with abortion rights lobbyists? Wouldn't you feel upset? Wouldn't you feel a little betrayed? Jesus, why are you eating with these people? Are you saying you approve of their lifestyle? Don't you know that they're the problem? Don't you know they're what's wrong with our world? Are you saying it's okay to live like that? Right, their question makes perfect sense. Why is Jesus eating with these people? It's scandalous. Look at how Jesus answers there in verses 12 and 13. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The image Jesus uses there is strong and memorable. He compares himself to a physician. Right? No one criticizes a doctor for spending all their time with sick people. Right? Those are the people that need the help. Those are the people that know they need the help. And so in the same way that a physician goes to the physically sick, so Jesus, the great physician of our souls, came to call those who are spiritually sick. Can you see there at the end of verse 13, Jesus is explaining his mission. Here is God himself, the eternally divine son of God who has always existed and who will always exist. And he's come to earth, he's take on, taken on human flesh, and here in verse 13, he tells us why. Right, this is a pretty big deal. What did he come to do? He says, I came to call sinners. He came to call sinners to repentance, to, to leave behind their ways, to leave behind their soul-destroying, futile efforts to find happiness and meaning and life and to make things okay through sex and money and alcohol, power, fame. Jesus is calling sinners to leave behind all the ways they've been hurt and rejected and despised and ostracized, and he's calling them to come to him, just like he called Matthew. 
right? Come and find rest for your soul. Come find forgiveness, find healing, find a restored relationship with God. Jesus left the Father's side, left all the riches of heaven, took on human flesh, he says, in order to call sinners. Brothers and sisters, that's what God's salvation looks like. He didn't make his salvation available. He he didn't leave clues so that we could figure out how to be saved. But he came to us. He came after sinners. He came to where the sinners were. He ate dinner with sinners. He hung out with thieves and prostitutes. He went where they were because he knew they weren't going to come to him any more than a lost sheep finds the shepherd. He knew that if he didn't go and call sinners, they would never come to him. And here's the thing, as Matthew's gospel unfolds, what you're going to see is that this project of coming to call sinners is going to cost Jesus his life. He didn't come to call sinners like you might run errands on a Saturday afternoon. No, him calling sinners meant that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles who would mock him and treat him shamefully, and spit on him, and flog him. And if that weren't enough, he was nailed to a cross and left to die like a criminal, like a, like a despised sinner, even though he had done no wrong at all. And as Jesus hung on that cross, he took the punishment that the sins of his people deserved. On the cross, God the Father laid on his Son all of the wrath, all of the punishment that we deserve, that Matthew's sins deserved that the the sins of those people at that house party deserved. The physician healed the sick by taking their disease upon himself. He bore our guilt so that we could be called into a new life, so that we could enjoy freedom from guilt and fear. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, and he is alive now so that we can be united to him by faith and experience eternal life with him. So we start with a question, why would Jesus eat with people like this? And the answer, I think, is as clear as it is shocking because these are the people that he came to call. These are the people that he died for. These are the people that he wants as his disciples. So with that said, let me point out three things that I think we need to see uh, from this passage in order to understand it. First, and briefly, I think this little story about Matthew is meant to give us a picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You see what Matthew does when Jesus calls him there. In verse 9, Jesus says, follow me. And what does Matthew do in response? He rose and followed him. See, Matthew is at his tax collecting booth. He's doing his thing. He's making his money. He hears Jesus' call, and he goes after him. He follows him. He leaves everything behind. Right? Don't, don't miss the significance of that. Matthew is a very rich man, and he had sacrificed everything for that money. He had suffered a lot of scorn. He had endured great contempt from his community. He he lived as an outcast in order to make that fortune. But here, he just leaves the business behind. No indication he ever went back to it. No indication he ever really had money again in his life. And throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus's ministry, there is this tension. And and we have to hold on to both sides, right? We have to insist on both truths. 
one side of the tension is that the Jesus presented to us in the Gospels is far more merciful, far more loving, tender, kind, and compassionate than we would ever dare expect. He is so caring towards people that we would not expect him to care about. Lepers, cripples, foreigners, tax collectors, sinners. But on the other hand, the other side of the tension, the demands of discipleship are also more rigorous than we might think. The only way to follow Jesus, it turns out, is on his terms. He does not admit half disciples. His call places a 100% claim on our lives. Uh, we see that in Matthew chapter 8 in the previous chapter where two would-be disciples were cautioned by Jesus to count the cost, to see whether they were really willing to follow Jesus on his terms. And so the call of Matthew here in chapter 9 reminds us that when Jesus calls us, his priority, or his call has priority over every other thing that we used to hold dear. The second thing I think we see in this passage, and we'll spend a bit more time on this, is that in it, we see a warning to the self-righteous. There in verse 13, Jesus tells us why he came, right? We've seen Jesus came to call sinners. And that's, that's shocking that he would care about the people that we would think he would reject. But what might be just as shocking is what he tells us about what he didn't come to do. Right there in verse 13, he says that he didn't come to call the righteous, in the context, Jesus is clearly poking at the Pharisees, right? After all, they're the ones asking the question there in verse 11. Now, I don't think we're meant to understand that Jesus really thinks the Pharisees are righteous in the sense that they're good enough to be right with God on their own terms. If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, he repeatedly skewered their version of righteousness, Right, later on in Matthew's gospel, he calls them vipers and whitewashed tombs. Right, Matthew 5.20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you've got no shot. So when Jesus calls them righteous here in verse 13, I think he's speaking to them on the ground of their self-perception. Right, the Pharisees, they looked down on Matthew and his friends because they thought they were the ones who were righteous. Right, they're the ones who claim to love God and to keep his law. But Jesus says something really important there in verse 13. He gives the rationale for his mission. He says he came to call sinners, and he explains why using the words of the prophet Hosea that we read earlier in our service. There in verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. Imagine how much that must have annoyed the Pharisees, right? Because they thought they knew everything. Hey, how about you go and learn the Bible, right? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the part of the book of Hosea that Jesus is referencing there, God is rebuking the people of Judah for their lack of love. And in Hosea 6.6, 6, the Lord drops this on them. He says, what is it that I want from you? What is it you think I want from you? Do you think I want long prayers? Do you think what I'm really interested in is attendance at the temple and the giving of tithes and sacrifices? Judah, do you think what I want is a bunch of religious activity? No, he says. I desire steadfast love. I desire mercy. 
It turns out God actually has very little interest in creating religious programs that give people a bunch of things to do so that they can feel like they're earning his favor, so that they can feel righteous. No, what God wants is for his people to be loving, to to care about one another, uh, to look out for one another. He's not saying that the sacrifices of the Old Testament aren't important. Obviously, they are. They were God's idea. But the point is that the people were never uh, supposed to use sort of a, a, a strict sort of cold obedience to God's commands as a cover for their lack of mercy and love, as if just the act of bringing a sacrifice was enough. So what does that have to do with the Pharisees? Why is Jesus pressing that idea home? Well, they, they were the ones who were awesome at the rules. They had strict religious practice down to a science. They did the sacrifice part perfectly. But what were they missing? Love, mercy, right? They look at these tax collectors and sinners, and instead of having broken hearts, they condemn them. They should have gone after them. They should have pursued them. They should have helped them. They should have prayed with them. They should have pled with them that they would come and turn to God. If they were really righteous, if they were really righteous the way God defines righteousness, if they were loving, they would have called sinners to repent. They would have moved forward towards them and shared a meal with them. They would have done exactly what Jesus did. And so Jesus says, look, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for people like you. I'm not here to heal people who think they're perfectly healthy. I'm not here for self-righteous people. I'm here for the people who know they need a physician. And so perhaps the most important question for for everyone sitting in this room this morning is this. Which one are you? Are you righteous or are you a sinner? Are you good enough or do you need to be saved? This is a tough question for us to answer growing up in the world that many of us have grown up in, right? If we just drift along with the current of our wider world, it is really hard to say that I'm a sinner, right? Everything around us encourages us to think that we're great just the way we are and that it's actually psychologically unhealthy to think poorly of yourself, right? It's widely assumed the way to be a a well-adjusted person is to learn to accept yourself completely just the way you are. Right, the heroes in our stories are the people who learn to be true to themselves, right? to listen to themselves, to throw off anything and anyone who would tell them that they need to change. And so it may be particularly hard for us to come to the conclusion that we are sinners. Right? It's hard for us to hear Jesus' call that, that sin-sick people should turn to him. It's possible that we've become so self-accepting, so comfortable that we're good enough just the way we are, that when the great physician offers us healing, we think, yeah, no thanks, I'm fine, actually. So friends, how do you understand yourself as you stand before God? Do you see yourself as basically okay? I'm fine. I think I'm good enough. I'm basically healthy. Or or can you feel the weight and the depth of your sin? I imagine there are several different kinds of people here this morning. 
Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, and all of this sounds a little odd to you. Of course you're not sick. Of course you're not a sinner. You're not perfect, but you're basically a good person, right? So what is this all about? I think Jesus would say that you, like maybe, a, I assume, a, a nicer version of the Pharisees, but, but that you have a terrible self-perception problem. If you think that you're basically okay, it's not so much that you're not spiritually sick as you don't realize it, right? God's word couldn't be clearer. Everything Jesus said made it really clear that every one of us, no matter how religious you are, no matter how polite you are, no matter how successful and, and, and how nice and pleasant you are, every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us needs to hear this call that Jesus makes to turn to him. And I think that if you examine your life, you'll see that this is true. I don't even really need to know you, to know that you've built your life, your identity on things other than God, that you've looked for meaning and purpose and pleasure and happiness in lesser things, that you've given your, your worship and your love to lesser things. And if you look at your life, you probably see a fruit of sin all over the place. Maybe it's bad habits that you can't change, uh, broken relationships, guilt, shame, selfishness, pride, anger, right? A, a, a sense of just not measuring up. Maybe you've, you strive for things and then you get them and then you realize that you still don't feel complete and whole. It's not enough to be a, a kind, decent person. I can promise you that you're not as good as the Pharisees were. But Jesus saw them, and he saw them as sick and self-deceived. Right? The, the biggest problem was that they didn't even see it. So friend, can you see it? Can you see that you need help? The diagnosis is the first step to the cure. Only people who know that they're sick ever go to the great physician for healing. There's a second kind of person I imagine might be here. Maybe you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, but, but you're just the opposite of the person I just described. You feel the weight of your sin and guilt, and you feel it intensely. And so maybe you feel like you could never come to Jesus because you are unworthy. You've done awful things. You've thought terrible things. Jesus could never possibly take someone like you. But friend, hear the good news. Jesus came to call sinners. He came to bring new life and forgiveness to sinners just like you. I had a, a, a guy that I'd met through a, a Bible study uh, that I do with folks from a local Alcoholics Anonymous chapter. Uh, and this guy had come. His sponsor was uh, one of the members of our church. And so uh, he had invited him. And so the guy reluctantly came, very quiet, came for three or four weeks. We're just reading through uh, the gospel of Mark and he's listening and, and not really saying anything. And I didn't really think he was really enjoying it all that much, uh, to be honest. But, but after like three or four or five weeks, uh, after we were done, he said, can I, can I talk to you for a second? Sure. So we went down the, the, uh, the hall to my office and we sat down and he said, okay, listen. He said, I'm confused. He said, you know, like when you, when you get to a certain age in life, maybe it's 11 or 12 or 13, you kind of figure out who you are and who you're not. And a lot of dreams like die at that point. Like I thought I was going to be an NBA basketball player. But then when I got to be about 12, I realized like, oh yeah, it's not going to happen for this guy, right? 
And so he said, look, he's like, I know who I am and who I'm not. He's like, I know I've, I, I, I figured out at an early age, I'm not going to be a doctor, right? I hate school. I'm not good at it, right? All, all these things I know I'm just not going to be. I'm not going to be an NFL player. That's just not who I am. He said, I've always thought of being a Christian that same way. I'm just not a good person. And in fact, he wasn't, right? I, I knew a bit of his background story and he'd just gotten out of jail and was trying to get his life back together. But he's like, I've always known that, that church isn't for me, being a Christian uh, isn't for me. He's like, but now we're reading the Bible. And he's like, I'm, I'm just confused because it seems like Jesus is saying that people like me can be his followers. And he's like, I, I, that never occurred to me before. I was like, yeah, you, I was like, you got it. You understand. You understand better than, than some of the people that come in this room every Sunday, right? I was like, yeah, you got it. And you should have seen the joy on his face, right? To realize Jesus would take someone like him, someone who completely disqualified himself from even being a decent enough person to even have any hope that Jesus would love him. So friend, if that's you, don't imagine that your sin is too great for Jesus to accept you. Even today, Jesus calls you to come find life in him. He, he, he calls you to turn to him today and, and to leave everything behind, just like Matthew left that tax booth behind. Right? Matthew could see that everything he had wasn't worth getting what he was going to get following Jesus. Right? That's repentance. Turning from your sin, feeling genuine remorse for it, asking God's forgiveness, and following after Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, the, maybe the third kind of person in this room, do you see the application of this principle for you, brothers and sisters? There is no becoming a Christian without seeing your sin and repenting of it. Right? You, you have to come to the point where you see that you are sin sick and need a physician. And by the way, that's really freeing for a church. Right? You, you know any other member of this church has already put their hand up and said, yeah, I'm not a good person. Right? I've, got, I've got issues. The Son of God had to die for me in order to make me acceptable to God, right? So, so feel free to confess your sins to one another, knowing that that person is, is just as terrible as you are, right? But it's easy, if you're not careful, to become self-righteous, right? After all, that is the besetting sin of religious people. Right? You, you see how the religious establishment reacts to Jesus' message, they are so puffed up with their own goodness they, that they despise anyone who's not as good as they are, all the while missing out on the point that they're not nearly as righteous as they thought they were. The, the danger is, because you're not a notorious sinner, right? because over time, by God's grace, maybe you've even become more holy, it's easy to think, I'm not a sinner anymore. You wouldn't say it with your mouth, I assume. You're too well taught. You know the Bible too well. But it's easy to begin to act that way, to begin to smell yourself a little bit and to, to read your own press clippings. And so, Christian, the question is, are you more or less aware of your need for Christ today than you were five years ago? Are you more or less aware of your personal insufficiency, your spiritual inadequacy, your, your need of a Savior than you were a few months ago or a few years ago? I think it's the experience of growing Christians that even as they grow in grace and godliness, they become more and more aware of their sin. As you see God's perfect standard more and more clearly, as you see the, the, the life of Jesus in Scripture more clearly, you see your own sin more clearly as well. So is that your experience? Are you critical? Are you, are you harsh? Are you judgmental? 
Are, are you an expert at seeing the faults in other people and seeing how they fail to measure up to your standards? Or do you find yourself regularly amazed by the grace of God? Do you find it almost inconceivable that God would send His Son for someone like you? Are you moved that the Son of God shed His blood for you? You remember the story of John Newton, the slave trader, who was saved by the amazing grace of God? He became a pastor, an author. By the end of his life, he was one of the most respected men in all of England. And near the end of his life, he he told a, a friend that as he was getting older, his memory had faded. And he said, I'm to the point where I only remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Right, that's a man whose heart has been healed by the great physician. And, and church, this is one of the things that you come to do every Sunday. Right, this is one of the ways that you worship God as a congregation and one of the ways that you serve one another as a church family. You remind one another of your great need. Right, you, you scrape away the barnacles of self-sufficiency that have accumulated during the week. Right, you sing and you read scripture and you pray until the rhyme of self-righteousness has melted away from your heart. And then you apply the fresh balm of God's love for you in Christ. You remember, you rejoice that we are all Matthew. We're all Zacchaeus. We're all the woman caught in adultery. We are all the thief on the cross. We are all nothing more and nothing less than sin-sick people healed by the great physician. That's how we get the love that Jesus talks about in his quote from Hosea. That's how you wean your heart off of self-righteousness. That's how you find yourself more captured by his love and his mercy than the mere performance of religious rituals. You remember the good news that Jesus didn't come for the good, but for the needy. He didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. And that's good news because if it were any other way, none of us could be saved. That brings us to our third and final thing to notice in this passage, and that is as we follow Jesus, we become more like him. That is to say, experiencing the, the love and mercy of Jesus towards sinners ought to make us into people who are loving and merciful to sinners. Right? If we're going to leave behind everything and follow after Jesus, we are naturally going to, to learn to love what he loved and to do what he did. And that means that we need to love lost, sin-sick people. That we need to cultivate love and sympathy for those still trapped in their sins. We need to labor to bring them into contact with the good news of Jesus. Right, you do that corporately as a church. One of the chief reasons that you exist, you are here to proclaim to the world around you that Jesus saves sinners. Right, this is why your church is involved in missions around the world. So that sin-sick people... Uh, that need uh, to hear about Jesus can hear about him. This is why you proclaim the gospel each and every time you get together. This is why you teach the children, right, about their need for a savior. You do it as a church. You should also do it as an individual. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He hung out with people who were inconvenient and inappropriate and messy and sloppy. Those were the kind of people Jesus had dinner with. So let me encourage you just to befriend people that don't know Christ. You can do what Jesus did. Just have dinner with them. 
And once you're there, love them. Be kind to them. Be gracious to them. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. I doubt Matthew had a problem telling people about Jesus. Right? My guess is you couldn't talk to Matthew too long before he tells you about the guy who, who changed his life. Those of us who have experienced God's unmerited favor should be the first to shower mercy on the, on the outcasts. Right? Those of us who have been inoculated to the lie that what God really wants from us is sacrifice, what he really wants is duty and performance, that what God really cares about are the clothes that you wear and the religious-sounding words that you've learned to speak. Right? Those of us who have had that self-righteousness by God's grace replaced with mercy should be the ones rushing to serve people in need, right? the sin-sick, the immigrants, the prisoners. Friends, experiencing the mercy and grace of Jesus ought to make us merciful, gracious people. At the beginning, I asked you who it is you'd like to share a meal with. Maybe someone famous, someone important, someone you love, someone interesting. Well, if you ask Jesus that question, he would say he'd want to have dinner with sinners like you and me. And friends, that's good news. Let's pray.